Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Today's guest is Ray Blakeney. Four or five years out of college, been working, you know, I worked at Silicon Valley. I worked at some Fortune 500 companies. I had an almost six-figure job as a computer engineer at one of these companies, paying very well. I had the quote-unquote American dream, right? I had my condo, I had my fancy car, and I could get a bigger condo and a bigger car, right? That was kind of, that's the path they put you on. That's what you see on TV, the kind of consumerism that's all around there. But there was this commercial on TV that came out right at that time for the U.S. Navy. And there was a quote in that commercial saying, if they were to write a book about your life, would anybody want to read it? Have you ever been more comfortable when in a foreign country than anywhere else? Being raised as a third culture child, this is exactly how Ray Blakeney feels. Born in the Philippines, raised in Istanbul, then moving to America has set the foundations for an incredible multicultural life, not to mention his family heritage rooting all over the world too. He's lived 75% of his life so far as an expat, and it looks like it's just going to carry on with plans to move to Taiwan soon too. We're going to dive into some really fascinating topics, and like I said in the title of this, Ray Blakeney has such a wonderful view on travel and the language and how to make them use them to your advantage. You know, we're going to discuss growing up as a third culture child and what that means, the importance of small things in culture, being more comfortable in foreign countries, volunteering in the Peace Corps, adventure camping on the Great Wall of China, why Morocco is so special, the Inca Trail and watching clouds flow like rivers, an insightful look on the benefits of second languages and more. So I really, really, really hope that you enjoy this great chat because Ray and I just got on really nicely. It just felt like we were talking over a couple of drinks. So I hope you sit back, have a listen and enjoy it. And just quickly as well, quite early on, I asked him about learning languages when he joined the Peace Corps. I read up in some of my research that he spent three months accidentally telling people that he was pregnant because he got the wrong word for it in Spanish. So I do make a joke of that. Um, so if it sounds a bit out of place, that ended up being, I came across more of like an inside joke rather than um, insight into you, the listener. So forgive me for that. But but yeah, that's why I mentioned calling people, uh, saying that he was pregnant to people while he's in the Peace Corps. A reminder for episode 100 too, there is the survey in the show notes. If you fill in the survey, I just want to know a bit more about you, the listener. It's seven questions, really quick and easy. Take less than two minutes if you get on it. And I'll be picking someone in three weeks' time to win some official merch. So go and check that out. It'll help me greatly. Help me get some maybe companies on board who can get you some discounts for things you'd be buying anyway. Go click that link, fill in the survey, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Here's Ray Blakeney. Ray, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Chris, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing very well indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, looking forward to getting into a bit of conversation. You've got such a wide and, uh, and deep background in travel and culture <laughs> and, and languages. So, yeah, looking forward to getting into it. I mean, like I just said, you know, you've done some incredible things. Uh, and with such an impressive nomadic upbringing and family, where did the love for adventure and travel begin? 
So that's a great question. I don't actually, I can't actually trace when it began, right? Like you mentioned, I kind of grew up this way. This is what I've been doing for a living pretty much since I was one year old. So I can't imagine not feeling this way, right? So I'll give you a reverse story. The first time I realized that, that this was strange. I went to college in Ohio. And I remember after college, I graduated. I mean, I was in my 20s already before I realized that the way I was brought up was weird. Um, and I went out with some friends. And one of the girls that we were going out with, she had never left the state of Ohio in her life. She had no passport. I mean, it's only an hour drive to the border, right? I mean, to another state and, you know, three hours to get into Canada. And you don't need a passport. You can just drive across the border and come back. Never done it. And then I asked her why she didn't. And she says, well, everything I need in my, you know, everything in the world is here, right? Why would I ever want to leave? That was like a light bulb moment for me, right? That I could never do that. I could never live in the same place and not wonder what's over the next hill kind of thing, right? I mean, you know, I guess it's a difference in personality. It's kind of the hunter and gatherer thing versus would you rather be a farmer staying in the same farm or are you the hunter who always wants to go over the next hill to see what's over there, wants, wants to go over there. Um, and I think that ties into my entrepreneurial tendencies as well. I'm always looking for what's over the next hill. As soon as I've discovered what's on this hill, I'm like, okay, let's move on. Let's go and see the next one. And travel <laughs> kind of fills that need as well. I was brought up this way. My family's been this way going back three or four generations. It's just the way we've lived. You know, my great-grandfather translated the, was the first person to translate the Tao from Chinese into English. And he had to run away from the country during the communist revolution. He had to run out of Peking. He was an exchange professor in oh, wow. Peking when that happened. So this has gone back like hundred years. I, I didn't come up with it. I can't take the credit for it. It's just been in my blood for generations. You kind of just hinted at it then, uh, you know, you're the third culture kid in your family. Could you tell us a, a bit more about that and how it shaped your life? Yeah, so giving you a little bit back of background about myself. So I was born in the Philippines. My mother's a Filipina. My dad's blonde, blue eyed, Boston Irish guy, but he grew up in Rhodesia in Africa. Um, and then when I was 11 months old, they both moved to Istanbul, Turkey, which is where I grew up. My first language is actually Turkish. And my second language is Tagalog. And my third language is English, which sounds great until you realize that really I said one word and then a week later I said another and then a week later I said another in those three languages. So I've literally, I have been speaking all three my entire life, but it looks really good on your college application when they say, is this your first language? I'm like, technically no. <laughs> and then I score really well on the English section of the exams, right? So um, that's kind of my background is growing up in this space. I was that Filipino-American kid who spoke fluent Turkish like a native. So we were, we were talking about this before we got on the show, right? I could go into like Turkish restaurants and everybody would assume I was a foreigner. I just flip around and speak fluent Turkish to them. And they'd just kind of, what? What's going on? This was back in the early 80s too, right? Way before the world of travel was in place. So that just didn't never happen. I mean, you know, you would never see a foreigner who spoke Turkish back in the day. That's the way I grew up. That was normal to me. I didn't feel abnormal until I moved back to the United States when I was 15 or 16 years old. And the weird part was, so I sound English, you know, I mean, I sound American. So if you hear me on the phone, nobody will think anything of it, but I just didn't fit into the culture. So it was this weird space where everybody would treat me like I was supposed to understand what the culture was, but I absolutely didn't because I didn't grow up here. You know, they would make cultural shows. Again, I'm dating myself. Back then, there was no YouTube and Netflix where I could catch up on the latest shows in the United States. We'd get them maybe a few years later and we'd only get like 10% of them. So if you made a joke about like say Friends, I wouldn't understand what you're talking about or some kind of other show you might've grown up with on TV. But that's how they would treat me when I was in the US. And then they look at me like I was weird. Like, wait, you're American. You don't know American football. I had no idea what the rules of American football were when I moved to the US. 
I still barely know what the rules of American <laughs> football are, right? I think you run from one side to the other, and if you get there, you get a point. Yeah, something, something to do with a bull, I think. <laughs> exactly. They hit each other. I, I don't really know the rest of it. But that's weird, right? Because I sound American. How can you be American and not know American football? So that was actually the biggest culture shock I ever had in my life was not when I go to foreign countries. It's when I go back to the United States. Yeah, I was going to actually ask about that, which is what what was that like moving from Istanbul? But that kind of answers yeah. the question, doesn't it? Just And... You raise actually a really good point about that and how important that is as well with TV shows. Just a little anecdote from from me. Uh, I When Sky first came out, Sky TV, you'd get the episodes first. And I remember going to my dad's on the weekend, watching the next Digimon episode. And then I'd come to school and I'd be like, guys, I know what happens. And they'd be like, no way. <laughs> you're, you're like sentient. You're the oracle of Digimon, right? <laughs> yeah. You can tell them exactly what's going to happen. But that's it. And we don't realize how important those things are to our self-identity and to our culture. We think self-identity is how you look, how you sound, how you talk, which is the problem. That's how people treated me, because I sound American, but you don't know American things. That's kind of weird. And people were not able to recon reconcile those two things. It took me a few years to actually learn how to fake being American better. I mean, I had to learn the rules of football and just different, you know, cultural stuff. I had to watch all the back episodes of Friends or whatever was, you know, was on TV at the time or the cartoons or whatever it was I was missing. And that was what... I was eventually able to fake it, but it's exhausting faking it a lot. I feel more comfortable when I live in another country mm. where nobody expects me to understand the culture. They're actually pleasantly surprised when I at least get parts of it. Like I'm in Mexico right now, right? I speak Spanish now. I didn't when I got here. Nobody will confuse me. I mean, I speak pretty well, but nobody will confuse me for a native speaker. They make jokes and I don't laugh. Nobody will get offended because <laughs> nobody expects me to get the jokes, right? If I do, it's like, whoa, look at that foreigner who can get our jokes. But if I don't, they will not be offended. That didn't happen in the US, right? People would make jokes and I'd be like, mm, was that funny? I, I don't get it. Um, so I feel much more comfortable. I've spent about three quarters of my life now living overseas outside of the United States. Well, I was going to say all that culture must have had some sort of an effect on you because you left your really comfortable, really well-paying job in America and you came and volunteered in the, in the Peace Corps for, for two years on almost no pay. How exactly did that come about then? Yeah, that was actually probably one of the pivotal moments of my life. It was one of those things where you start realizing who you are. Um, so I was talking to us. We have a girl that helps us here, our nanny at the house, and she's in her early 20s. And her parents are like pushing her to get married and have kids. And I was just like, well, yeah, when I was in my early 20s, trust me, that was not on my mind. Um, because the main reason is I think I didn't really have a vague idea who I was until I was about 30, right? And this journey that you're, you're asking about was the beginning of that discovery. That wasn't you know, the discovery, but it was the beginning. So I was about 26 years old, four or five years out of college, been working, you know, I worked at Silicon Valley. I worked at some Fortune 500 companies. I had an almost six-figure job as a computer engineer at one of these companies, paying very well. I had the quote-unquote American dream, right? I had my condo, I had my fancy car, and I could get a bigger condo and a bigger car, right? That was kind of, that's the path they put you on. That's what you see on TV, the kind of consumerism that's all around there. But there was this commercial on TV that came out right at that time for the US Navy. And there was a quote in that commercial saying, if they were to write a book about your life, would anybody want to read it? Oh. And I remember specifically the scene when that comes up, it was these Navy SEALs pulling up in the dark on a beach, but most of the screen is dark and it was just in white text written on the top of the screen. I mean, that's how much it had an impact on me, right? I was just looking at, and I remember thinking, I'm like, the track I'm on right now, absolutely not. I mean, I'll probably have a nice, you know, a decent house and I'll probably be okay. And, you know, everybody, I'll pay all my bills. 
But after 40 years, if I wrote a book about my life, I wouldn't want to read it. I would have you know, sat in a cube and written code for 40 years, right? I'm like, no, that would be a really short book. So at that point, I'm like, I have to change this. I can't continue on this path, which is quote unquote expected of me. Not that my parents pressured me to do it. My parents were very open to let me do what I wanted. But it was just kind of like, you know, society is like, what are you doing after high school? Go to college. What are you doing after college? You get a good job at a big company. You work there for 30 years, right? I mean, it's just kind of what we're all taught kind of since we're kids. Um, then you retire, then you can enjoy life, right? Once you retire at 65 and have some money, then you can start enjoying life. If you've like, made it that far, to... you can... <laughs> exactly, if, if you're one of the lucky ones who make it and actually can you know, have enough savings to retire, which a lot of people make it to 65 and can't do that anyway, right? That is what kind of pushed me to you know, quit and do something entirely different. I wanted to travel. I had a little catch-22 back then where I wanted to find a job overseas, but no job overseas would hire you unless you had overseas experience. So I'm like, yeah, no, so how am I supposed to do that? So I knew about the Peace Corps. My dad was in the Peace Corps. I'm like, okay, that's what this is. This is going to get me my overseas experience. It doesn't pay very well. In fact, it pays 150 US dollars a month, so it pays awfully, but at least I get two years overseas. So now when I get back, I can apply for overseas jobs and say, look, I've already worked overseas. And that was kind of my plan when I joined the Peace Corps. And that's what changed my life which led me to meeting my wife, which led me to starting businesses, which led me to where I am today. And I own multiple six and seven figure businesses, but I work from home in my pajamas. So yeah. I wouldn't trade it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, that was the goal. So many of these things are, these things are about the journey too. I mean, other than telling people that you were pregnant, what did you learn about when you were, what sort of life lessons did you learn about in the Peace Corps? So one of the things you learn about in the Peace Corps, I kind of had knew this when I was younger, but you know, when you see things as a kid, it doesn't have the same impact on you as you see them when, the, when you're an adult. It doesn't matter how poor you think you are or how little money you think you make, especially if you live in a first world country like yourself in the United Kingdom or me in the United States, you don't know what poverty is. I'm sorry. Until you go to places like in Southeast Asia, India. In my case, I worked in the Southern state of Mexico, which was the poorest state in Mexico. And you see people living in laminate huts and kids begging on the street for money. You don't know what poor is. The reason I mention it, it teaches you gratitude. Because no matter what you have, I was making $150 a month and half the people around me would be happy, would have been ecstatic to make $150 a month, right? I mean, that's kind of the place you get in there. It teaches you gratitude for what you have. And I think that kind of leads you to a happier life because you teach you to be more grateful for everything you have, whether you make a lot of money, make very little money, whatever. Um, but if you're able to look at your life, something good happened today. Just as human beings were taught, you know, we've evolved to fixate on the bad. You know, Chris, 10 people could give you a compliment and then one person insults you. What are you going to remember when you go to bed tonight? Oh, you bet your ass the insult. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, this is what I said. It said back to you totally ignore those 10 people who, you know, said, oh, that was great. I loved your show. Or the one-star review on your podcast when you have 105 five-star reviews. It's that one-star review that you fixate on. You ignore the other 100 five-star reviews, right? That is human nature. Learning gratitude helps us kind of curve that a little bit, right? Um, I'm not very new age. I'm not, none of that kind of stuff. It's just simple, you know, if you want to live a happier life, be grateful for what you have. That'll get you 70% of the way there. Yeah, I tell my daughter that same thing. I, I say, you know, so, sometimes when she's she's flipping over something something small, 
I just say, I just go, Penny, you know, did you wake up in a bed today? She's like, yeah. I said, like, did you have breakfast? And she's like, yeah. I was like, well, we're having a good day then. Yeah. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Because I'm sorry, we can't watch more TV. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, you, can't, you can't watch that that Russian bear show that's like super popular on YouTube. Masha, I think it's called or whatever it is. Yeah, we're not watching another episode of those. I'm like, yeah, no, I, that's exactly it. And that's one of the things we want to teach our son as well. We're lucky that we've kind of done pretty well financially. He's going to have no idea. I mean, he'll have a nice house. He'll have school. But if he comes to me, I jokingly say, if he comes to me at 15 and says, dad, buy me a car. I'm like, I'd be happy to help you. Here's the once, you know, the job section of the newspaper. Yeah. Knock yourself out. I will drive you to the dealership. I'm all over that. I'll, I'll drive you there once you saved up the money, but I'm not buying you anything because you need to be grateful and, uh, you know, appreciate the work for what you already have. Good. I mean, a nice segue there as well, chatting a bit more about travel. You know, I've heard you speak about it before, but I'd love to hear from you um, directly about your adventure camping on the Great Wall of China. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that trip? Yeah, so that one was one of my first, I would say, adult trips. So as we mentioned, I grew up traveling. My wife, my parents would take us with them whenever they travel around the world. I've probably been to about 30 or 40 countries when I was a kid. But it's very different when you're doing with your, you know, your parents are dragging you along and they take you to tourist sites and all the rest of it. It's very different when you do it as an adult. So China was one of the first big trips I took. The reason I went was, my, as I mentioned, my sister was teaching um, English in China. She spoke Mandarin. She was like, come on, come on out. I was able to scrimp and save. And I had one month of vacation days back when I was in corporate and they allowed me to take a month off. So I, I went out over there. I do not, I did not and do not speak a lick of Mandarin, right? So I could not read the signs. I couldn't find a bathroom if you ask me because they didn't use, at least back then, they didn't, back in 2004, they were not, they told, they hadn't switched over to the UN signs, you know, male, female figure. They were just using Chinese characters on bathrooms. So I remember distinctly sitting and standing in front of a bathroom for like an hour waiting for my sister to arrive, having to go to the bathroom, but I couldn't find it. I couldn't ask for it. So just sitting there and then, you know, my sister arrives. I'm like, I need to go to the bathroom. Where is it? And she just like, points to the big red sign behind me. That means bathroom. You were standing in front of it waiting for me. Oh. Run in there, go to the bathroom. So one of the coolest things I did on that trip, so we did a lot of stuff, went to the terracotta soldiers, was a chance to go and spend one night camping on the Great Wall of China. I don't know if they still allow you to do this. Again, this was about 20 years ago. But there's multiple parts of the Great Wall of China you can go to. The main part where most of the tourists go is kind of the renewed one where if you've seen photos of this perfectly like you know in perfect shape you're crawling up the hill it's picturesque that's where most people go there's also a kentucky fried chicken and a starbucks there so that kind of tells you how touristy exactly that part of the wall is if you go on the wrong days it's so crowded you can barely make your way up the wall all the rest of it i had a chance to go to another part of the wall because the wall is thousands of kilometers long it's a little bit long isn't it yeah, exactly. So there's, there's plenty more than that, like two or three kilometer tourist area you can go to. So I found out my sister, since she lived there, she's like, this is the area you want to go to. So we had a chance to go, go out there. She didn't come with me, but she had done it before. And what it was, it's a two day hike along the ruins of the Great Wall of China. So there are certain parts that are actually in decent shape. They're ruins, right? They're kind of falling apart, but the towers are still there. The wall is still there. You can kind of see how it is more naturally plants growing over it. And that's what we did. So the first day was about a five or six hour hike. Not too rough. I mean, it was kind of up and down, but I do remember thinking, you know, this is not going to be too bad. So I was carrying my own water. One of the funny things there is there was this group of women who were chasing, kind of, kind of walking with, up, with me and this group with about eight of us who were on this camping trip. And they kept, at the beginning, they're like, would you like a bottle of water? And I'm like, no, 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 I have water. I got this. So as we start walking 
and I'll, you know, they, they started following us and I'm like, what, they're four foot 11. I, I cannot want, you know, I'll walk these ladies. Cause I'm like, I, I just don't want to sell a salesperson next to me for the whole thing. So I start walking faster. Yeah. They easily kept, kept up. And I'm like, started walking faster. And about four hours later, I'm like, yeah, give me the water. I'm dripping sweat because I'm trying <laughs> to get away from it. I think the price went up like 300 fold or something by the time we got in there, it was still like a dollar for the water. Um, so that was kind of the first day. It was beautiful because on that part of the wall, on the left, you could see Mongolia. So you see the foothills of Mongolia. And on the right, in the you know, you, you see China. So at the end of the day, we, you get to this kind of tower, which is kind of falling down. You go up to the second level. And the second level has a third level kind of on top of it. But the roof is, you know, decayed years ago. So you kind of have the walls with these arches, arch windows. And that's where the group set up dome tents for us. We'd go in there. They cooked us some meals. And then at night, we just kind of sat. We just kind of watched the sunset over Mongolia, over in the distance. You wake up in the morning, it was beautiful. Mist all over the Mongolian foothills. And then it would slowly burn off as the rest of the day went on. So we started hiking, you know, they slowly started creeping up. Wonderful experience, wonderful experience. We did another four or five hour hike. It wasn't, you know, a super difficult hike. Another four or five hour hike the next day. And you get to the end of that part of the wall and it's on this hill where there's no real way down. And the only way you can actually get back to where the bus is waiting for you is on a zip line. So I zip lined off the Great Wall of China over a lake down at the bottom and you end up at the end and that's where the bus came and picked you up. So that was a really cool experience that we had in China. Oh, that's fantastic. We just spoke about Marrakesh briefly as well. I've read that you absolutely loved the country. So I wanted to find out what made it so special for you. The mix of cultures. So I grew up in the Middle East, right? So I mean, Istanbul, Turkey, that's also a huge mix in cultures, right? I mean, Byzantium, the old Roman culture. I literally lived across the street from a 2000 year old castle. And that's where, when we played like knights and robbers as a kid, I literally would just walk into a castle across the street because we were the local street kids and they would just, the guards would let us in. We didn't have to pay like tourists to go in and out of the castle, right? So I thought I understood like this mix of cultures. I went with my wife to Morocco. Um, this was before our son was born and she'd never been to the Middle East before. So I wanted to do Middle East light, right? Some kind of kind of tourist area, but some people do get very intimidated by the Middle East, right? So there's certain areas, I, I wouldn't have gone straight into like Saudi Arabia, for example, but they have much more stricter laws that are there. Morocco is very used to tourists, tons of tourists that were there. The most interesting thing is people, somebody who runs, you know, LiveLingua.com, a, a language business, every Moroccan seems to speak like 12 languages. It's crazy. Like they all speak multiple languages. I'm like, I speak four and I feel illiterate here. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's the taxi driver. He speaks more languages than I do, right? When, when we showed up to, uh, I can't remember the name, the beach areas, because we actually took the boat across from Spain, uh, across the Strait of Gibraltar. And we ended up, you know, that's how we started our trip. But I loved also the different environments that you have in Morocco. If you see Morocco, most of us probably think Casablanca, kind of, you know, these kind of adobe huts kind of thing that we see in a lot of the movies. I found it was very varied when we got there, right? So we kind of pulled into the first place. It was kind of a beach town, more touristy. Um, a lot of people from Europe on the beach that were there. Then we went up into the mountains. We went to a town called Chef Chowen, which is this town that's all painted blue because the, apparently according to old belief, blue would keep mosquitoes away. But it was, so the whole town is painted this beautiful color of blue and the whole temperature changes. It's much cooler when you get up there. But you're kind of sitting in this place that feels like ice cubes, right? But the whole, these old buildings, but they're still beautifully maintained. Some of them are hotels now. You can spend all day and there's no other color, but this turquoise kind of light, light color blue. If you're listening to this podcast, don't know what it is, Google it. Amazing little town um, up in the mountains. From there, we drove into the Sahara Desert where in the beginning, it was like this dry, arid desert. And I had never seen a landscape like that before. So, you know, you see in the movies, it's flat, not the sand dunes yet, right? It's just flat and dry. 
as far as the eye can see. And the weird part is there were no roads. Our driver just, you rent cars there because there are no tour, you know, big tours that do it. So we have, you have this private car and he was just driving. I'm like, how do you know where to go? I was like, oh, I've done this a thousand times. Because there's like no landmarks. I'm like, what are we doing? And out of nowhere, like a valley, this like valley shows up and it's lush green. I mean, it's, it's like those old Looney Tunes cartoons where there's like an oasis in the middle of nowhere. It really was. We looked down in there. It's because there's a river going down in this canyon. And down there, it looks like a tropical jungle, but it's surrounded by arid desert all around. I mean, it's just like 100 meters on both sides of this river that is just totally, totally green. Little towns, little villages. And then from there, we ended up in the Sahara Desert where we ended up camping for a night. Um, almost got killed by a camel. That was always fun. Um, but that's the typical, like the sand dunes, the, the stuff that you see in the movies. Then you get up to Marrakesh, which is this old trading town that's been there for years. There's a suburb whose name I can't remember, but they, you know, scenes from Game of Thrones were filmed there because it's so dramatic, this castle town with waves and stuff splashing out there. Um, they're very proud of Games of Thrones. Like every building where anybody from Game of Thrones ever even went, you know, if somebody used this outhouse, there's a picture of the guy who used the outhouse, like pinned to the side of it, like, you know, they're from the Game of Thrones. <laughs> the mountain peed here. I mean, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty much what they had when we were there. Um, but it was just this mix of cultures. It was really, the people were really welcoming. The food was very familiar to me growing up in Turkey. I love lamb, right? So they had like grilled lamb with garlic on top. It's not like, you know, huge on salt sauces or anything. Um, some rice pilav, some of the other dishes that they made in their... Um, and tahines and all the rest of it. We did some cooking classes. So it's definitely a place that's worth visiting um, for anybody who hasn't. If you're kind of worried about the Middle East, I don't actually count Turkey as the Middle East where I grew up, even though everybody who's not in the Middle East counts Turkey as the Middle East and the Middle East counts Turkey as Europe. So it's kind of that's the child nobody wants, but Morocco <laughs> is the Middle East. If you've never been there, kind of interested in the culture, start with that. It's like Middle East light. Um, and then if you want to go to a little places that you're really more intimidated by. Exactly. And then you can go into the rest of it. Perfect. Um, just recently, I recorded an inter um, a podcast where the guy talked about nature being a gift. Uh, so, you know, whether it's a mountain uh, and letting you summit or you see some wildlife that you've just been looking for. What moments have you had while traveling where you've really thought, wow, this is a gift? Absolutely. So that would take me to us doing the Incan Trail in Peru. Mm -hmm. One of the most amazing things is I saw there and when I had that like moment that you're talking about was, I think it was day two or three of the Incan Trail. Um, day one's easy, you're kind of going along a river. Day two, yeah, that killed me, right? You go from 8,000 feet to 14,000 in one day, all straight up. Yeah, that was really, really rough. I mean, you know, I live in Mexico at 6,000 feet, so I'm, I'm at altitude, but yeah, that doesn't, you know, as a mountain climber, you know, I mean, it's, you take 20 steps and you just can't feel your legs, right? Because you're just not getting enough oxygen in there. So you wait a few seconds, then you take 10 steps more, then you take 10 steps more. Eventually we did it. Day three is the fun day because you're kind of, you've kind of gone up to 14,000, you go down to about 10 to camp out. And then you're kind of doing the more gradual ups and downs for the rest of the day. The day it was raining slightly on the day, I remember, and we were probably around 10,000 feet. So in this case, we were above whatever the rain, you know, the, the heavy rain clouds were just right below us. So we're kind of hiking on the top of this mountain where there are other mountains in the distance. And if we, we looked out on the right, so I have a light fear of heights. So what I was able to do was, you know, luckily I, I usually look to the left. So I'm looking at the wall that's over there instead of looking over to the right. This time I looked to the right and I saw the rain clouds, but they weren't moving like rain clouds. They were moving like a river through the Andes mountains. So it was just flowing the, through that. And because they were moving so quickly because of the wind, 
it actually looked like water. I was just looking there, it looked like a stream of that. And then we looked out at the side of the clouds and we saw llamas and alpacas, just, just like a herd of them, like running along the side of the mountain. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. Now the Inca Trail, they let, let about a hundred people on a day, but everybody's at such different levels. Literally, it was just me and my wife. I mean, there was nothing else around us because a hundred people a day on, I don't remember exactly how long it is. Yeah, you all lose each other eventually, right? Because you all go at your own paces. There was nobody around us. And all we saw was cloud, you know, this river of clouds with, you know, these alpacas, just a herd of them just roaming up the side of these green mountains. Beautiful. Light rain coming down, not the kind of obnoxious one that soaks you through, but enough that kind of you feel like you're out in nature. I still have that image stuck in my head. That's incredible. That's like truly incredible. You just mentioned that you uh, run Live Lingua. How important do you think it is to learn languages? It is, so learning languages, it's extremely important. You know, the, there's two levels to it, right? Learning a language, especially if you learn the right languages, if you don't speak English, learn English, because right, that opens the world to you. It opens Google, opens all the information, all the courses, all the information is out there. If you don't, it opens up a different way of understanding to somebody. So if you're an English speaker and you're learning another language, it opens up another way of understanding. So let's say you want to learn Spanish, depending on the accent. You say when to learn, you're in the UK, you want to learn Spanish from Spain. To learn a language well, you don't only learn the grammar. That's where a lot of people get held up. And I can tell you, I, you know, I learned French grammar in school for oh, 12 years. And yeah, I mean, I can't speak a word. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't conjugate to be an être in Spanish, I mean, in French correctly to this day, right? Because there was no context, no culture behind it for me. But if you're learning another language, you learn the culture. That's how you can really speak, right? Because you can learn the words for a joke, but unless you know why the joke's funny, you're not really speaking the other person's language. And that will change the way you look at almost everything in your life in a good way, right? I mean, you're, you're going to be able to look at things from a different perspective than you were in the past, because now you have a different perspective to use. If you only speak one language and only understand one culture, it's you're like a horse with those blinders on. That's all there is to the world. The most amazing thing in the world might be right here to your right, right? But the horse never looks to the right. And that's the way I look at languages. For example, like I, I had a friend in the United States and I kept on pushing her to travel. She always had trouble get, getting a boyfriend, right? And I'm just like, look, travel around the world, just see, you know, see what else is out there. She traveled within a year. She was married to somebody from Southeast Asia because the problem for her was her personality, her stuff. It just didn't click with the U.S. culture that she was in. She had never tried it. She went over there and she's like, wow, nobody's ever treated me this well before. It's just because that culture was a good fit for what she was looking for in a in a partner, right? Yeah. That's what culture does to you. It opens up a world, whether it be relationships, whether it be in your own personal life, um, whether it be, and I'll tie it back to entrepreneurship. One of my hacks for entrepreneurship, you learn a language, then you can move to that country and live there. What does that mean if you're trying to launch your own business, right? Whatever it may be. It means that, let's say in the United Kingdom, you, you create your own online business. It makes you a thousand quid a month. Could you quit your job and live off of that? and support your family? Probably not. I mean, you know, you might be able to scrimp by, but it won't be a very comfortable life. What if you could take that job and move to Morocco, let's say? Same time zone. You can be home in a few hours. Suddenly that thousand quid goes from barely surviving to middle upper class lifestyle. That's travel, right? Your same job went with you. You know the language. Let's say you speak French. You know, you learn French to go to Morocco. And that opened up the whole world. Every French-speaking country is now a possible place for you to live, survive, 
and now you've got just got a 300% raise just because you're willing to move somewhere else to where you already speak the language. That's it. For Americans, it's moving to Mexico, right? You want a 400% raise? Learn Spanish, move to Mexico. You know, for the same price as living in New York City, you would be the 0.1% here. And you'd have a maid, a cleaner, a driver, eat delicious tacos and probably look out over the beach every single day, right? Instead of being stuck in traffic every morning or on the subway. So that's what languages can do. Perfect. I mean, learning languages as an adult is completely different. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Your kids just seem to soak it up like a sponge. Uh, do you have any advice to us adults? Because, <laughs> you know, the three-year-olds aren't really listening to this podcast. <laughs> what advice have you got for us? Well, I'll put, I'll, my, my, my one-year-old will have to probably afterwards. And you guys might have heard, it, heard him yell <laughs> along with my dog earlier. Um, so... Let me start by kind of correcting a small little fallacy in there. They say that adults can't learn languages. Yes, we do learn a little differently. And people think that kids absorb languages as a sponge. I'll, as somebody who has a kid right now who's you know just saying his first words, it's not actually as accurate as people say. How long does it take for a kid to really learn how to speak their native tongue? Like, I mean, have a conversation. Three years, four years. I'm not saying one word, but to be able to have an intelligent conversation, three or four years. So the kid took three or four years to learn this language. The issue is as adults, we think we can do it in three months because we're used to being able to pick up skills in three months, right? If I told you, I guarantee you can learn Spanish in three or four years, you'd be like, yeah, I could probably do that. I mean, that doesn't even sound that challenging, right? But they also, most people would not put three or four years of work into being able to do something like that. So the fallacy that kids can learn faster than adults that's, I believe, where it comes from. I think adults can actually learn it a little more quickly if they put their mind to it, right? Um, I spoke conversational Spanish in about a year. A kid growing up in Mexico, you know, does not speak conversational Spanish if you're born here in a year. As you said, three or four years is probably when they can do it. Um, there are certain things like accents that you can't pick up as an adult that kids can because our hearing gets trained and all the rest of it. So my tip to you as an adult is one, get rid of that fallacy that you can't learn a language. We have students at Live Lingua who are over 80 years old and they, it takes them a few years. That's memory becomes an issue after a certain point. But you know, when Chris, you're our age, we don't have that excuse yet, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but we can learn another language. It's the accent that we'll struggle with. So don't get discouraged in the beginning. Number two, it's gonna take time. I mean, I know I just said the three or four years, you can do faster than that, but it's not gonna be, If don't believe those 30 day courses Hey, those 30-day courses for learning a language are about as useful as the 30 days for six-pack abs. Yeah. Both of those are probably not going to happen unless you already have like a five-pack ab and you're just trying to get that last line in there. Maybe you can pull it off. But most of us are not getting six-pack abs in 30 days. So commit yourself to the long term. And the final trick is, you know, one, get a teacher. I'm biased because we have an online you know, school where we provide tutors for these languages. That's step one. Step two, if you can, go to the country where the language is spoken. So the tutor will get you at a certain level. But if you want to learn Spanish, go to Spain for three months, Mexico. You want to learn Mandarin, go to go to China. You want to learn Japanese, spend some time in Japan. That is the biggest hack you can have to learning any language. Yeah, absolutely. And, and try and uh, give yourself no option for, um, for speaking your native tongue. Uh, a lot Absolutely. Of, yeah, a lot of people really, really get on well with um with just refusing, just being like, right, I only speak Swedish for two weeks. <laughs> That's what I did. Well, I mean, especially, for example, we talked about earlier, my wife and I are planning to move to Taiwan. One thing we like about Taiwan is we look at Taiwan and Singapore. In Singapore, you can get by in English, right? Everybody speaks English. 
I apologize for yelling. That's my one-year-old learning how to speak. Um, and so there you go. Exactly. <laughs> but in Taiwan, apparently nobody's, you know, very few people speak English in the street. So you have to speak Mandarin. Same thing when I moved to Mexico. They sent me to a part of Mexico where, yeah, finding an English speaker, I'm sure they existed. But I mean, you know, I'd have to be looking around for this person. I had to speak Spanish to survive. That forces you to learn a language. I had my self-discipline as well. I wouldn't watch, you know, you can get Netflix anywhere now. I would not watch English and Netflix for the first six months. It was all Spanish all the time. While I was there, I didn't want anybody to even try speaking English to me. It's only Spanish. It's exhausting. Take some time off. I would take like every month, I would take a weekend and I would just be like, this is English. I'm reading, reading an English book. My mind needs time to process. But that was very important for me. I guess that also taught you gratitude for, for, for the main language as well. <laughs> absolutely absolutely I mean, and you know we're lucky we have english right that we it's our main language because it is the global language can be a disadvantage when you're trying to learn another language because if your main language is zulu and you travel you're not going to find another zulu speaker there you have to learn the language that's there with us with english we'll probably find an english speaker if we look hard enough yeah i mean you, you speak kind of several languages and especially running an, an, an online language school is super impressive do you struggle to compend uh, <laughs> <laughs> Comprender, yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> do you struggle to compend math and compend? Oh my god! <laughs> Compartmentalize, maybe. Yeah. It's hey, all good. There you go. There's that one. <laughs> do you struggle to do that? <laughs> no, not that much. Simply because, I mean, most of the languages I grew up speaking. So to me, they're just totally divided in my mind. I mean, I would flip in one conversation, I would flip through all of them. Um, Spanish, I learned as an adult. So that's kind of in my mind, it's like, that's the only language that's not native. So flipping into that, it sometimes takes me about 10, 20 seconds to get to the, you know, after this call, if somebody speaks to me in Spanish, I'll stumble for about 10 seconds as my mind kind of gets going. But I don't confuse words very often between the languages. Now, again, I grew up speaking multiple languages. That might be the reason why I'm able to do this. I can't speak to that, um, but at least for me, it hasn't been a huge issue. Maybe if I learn languages that are more similar to each other, you, that might happen more. But like Turkish, Tagalog, English, and Spanish, for example, they're very different languages. So, you know, the words don't necessarily sound the same. So it's the, there's no chance I'm going to say ekmek, which is bread in Turkish, and pan, which is bread in Spanish, and confuse those two words. I mean, they're totally different, right? Yeah. I kind of get that, actually, because I'm finding as I'm, um, I'm, I'm trying my hand at Swedish, um, I've paused the Swedish and um, this is all very, very basic level um, uh, that I'm at, at the moment, but um, I thought I've got more interest in traveling to Norway. So I kind of pause the Swedish and I'm trying to do some, some Norwegian and I'm getting on with Spanish. And I find myself when I'm trying to, when I'm forcing myself to speak Spanish or Swedish and not English, I find myself doing like blurring the two. I start off with a bit of Spanish, say the key word that I need to know it in Swedish. I don't know it in Spanish and then finish off with some Spanish. I've so. never tried learning multiple languages at the same time either. So that's, that might be a difference. Remember, I, I learned one, moved on to another, learned another, moved on to another. That's kind of been the way for me. I've never actually tried learning two languages at the same time. So that I can imagine that might do a confusion. It might be worth focusing on one. You know, there are studies out there. I don't know if it ap applies to languages, but you know, the humans can't multitask, right? We have the fallacy that, yeah, I can do three things at the same time, but studies have proven humans can't multitask. We just, sometimes we flip between two or three things and then we don't do any of them really, really well. With language learning, I think for a lot of people that could be the same thing, right? You're actually holding yourself back in both languages by trying to do both at the same time. So let's say you learn both in five years. You might have been able to learn if you by doing both at the same time. 
I bet you could learn both in three years by focusing on one for a year and a half and the other one for a year and a half. And you'd probably be better off for it if you were doing something like that. Yeah, I think it comes down to that three, four years thing, that impatience, I think. So that's it. So yeah, I've already, I've already been thinking, but like, <laughs> oh, I, I really want that. I, I feel like I've been an idiot not to learn another language for so long. And Spanish is just a really fantastic, fairly easy to learn compared to the rest to have as a, as a second language. Uh, and then I really want to go to Norway. Yeah, I mean, the especially if you kind of come over this part of the world, you speak English, you speak Spanish, you can start driving in Alaska and finish driving in Valparaíso in Chile and speak to everybody in their native language along the way. That's kind of drive around Brazil. So, you know, <laughs> just, just hit Brazil and just kind of go along the, go along yeah. the Pacific coast. Go on the west Brazil, side. <laughs> exactly. Use the west side of the country. But arguably to me, Brazilian Portuguese sounds like drunken Spanish. Because I joke like I speak fluent Portuguese after six beers because my Spanish just slurs together and it sounds like Portuguese. So you could actually, we were in Cuba a few years ago and we met a Portuguese family and my wife and I just spoke to them in Spanish. They would reply in Portuguese. We talked for hours. So it's kind of, it was at the point where, you know, we would understand it every once in a while word did not work but for the most part we, we could understand each other by doing that so that was kind of an interesting experience for us yeah absolutely so you you've traveled so much and you've experienced such a huge variety of corners of the globe you were born in philippines raised in turkey your family who grew up around the world and now you reside in mexico what do you think is the biggest thing you've learned from this vastly multicultural life you've had so far i think it's relevant today i don't understand nationalism I'll be honest, right? So I'm, I have an American passport, but I wouldn't call myself patriotic at all because patriotic is kind of a way of identifying yourself that separates you from everybody else, right? I'm, I'm British, I'm American. We're number one. That's a much more American thing to say than I'm pretty sure Brit <laughs> British people don't say that on a regular basis. But well, it's, we kind of hate it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's a way of separating yourself from the rest of the world, right? When you kind of really cling to this nationalism is national identity when you travel you realize humans are not that different i mean yeah we speak different languages we might have different religions but if you ask 99 of the people in the world they want food we were talking about this with your daughter right they want food they want a house they want to live in a safe place that's it that's what all of us want right so these artificial separations of you can't travel here because you don't have the right piece of paper that does not make any sense to me. Um, I think it just separates us all and I just don't get it. So that's kind of the, I don't know if it's something I learned or something I, you know, that's not a learning thing, but it's the biggest realization. I have friends all over the world. Um, I know nice people in every country. I know not nice people in every country, right? It's got nothing to do with their passports. It's got nothing to do with what country they're from. Um, it just has their perspective. So that's kind of what travel does for me. We're all the same. I wish, you know, it was easier for people to just get to know people from other parts of the world and people weren't as scared to do so. That's fascinating. So last question before we get to some wrap up ones then, which is that you've had such an incredible traveling and adventure career you know, so far uh, and you do it and you manage to fit it around your entrepreneurship as well. What is one moment that you'd love to relive? <sighs> okay. Driving a Ferrari around Tuscany. <laughs> That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, so I'm cheap, so I don't like paying for things, but it was my birthday when we were in Italy for a few months and my wife got this for me without telling me. You can actually, there are these tours out there where you can choose a luxury car and just drive it for the day, right? And there's actually a lead car, so it you know, takes you around these tours. So she got, I've always like 
love Ferraris. I don't have, I don't want to own one because that's, yeah, well, you know, a car, I, I own a Hyundai. It gets me where I need to go, but I've always wanted to drive a supercar. I mean, it's just like, what does it feel like to drive one of those things? So she rented me one, a convertible Ferrari for the day. It was kind of one of those kind of luxury high-end tours where, you know, we had a lead car. It was private. We were driving through these little villages. At the end, we ended up at a Castillo that was closed down just for us. And it was like there was a restaurant there. and We were the only people, you know, drive up in a Ferrari and the whole restaurant's closed down for you and your wife to eat, kind of looking out over the countryside, you know, pictures of Bill Gates on the wall and Richard Branson eating at the same place. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have that much money. <laughs> you know, I'm like, they, they didn't, Oddly enough, they didn't ask me to take a photo to put it on their wall of me. So you will not see a photo of me on the wall of that restaurant. Um, but it was a really cool experience right up until the end, oddly enough, because at the end, so we're pulling back into Florence and this was a convertible car. And I don't really know where the button to, I couldn't figure out where the button to pull the, uh, the hood back up was. And we stop at a stop sign or stop at a red light. And this beggar comes up and starts asking for money. And I literally had no money on me. I was like, I wasn't carrying cash. But you know how bad it feels to be driving a Ferrari and have somebody coming up to you and ask for money? You're like, no, sorry, I don't have any. Like, who believes that, right? You're yeah. driving a Ferrari, like, of course you have money. Look, look, look what you're driving. And I felt like this, he knows that. So I felt like an awful human being in that moment. I was just like this, I feel really, really bad. This is why I will never buy one of these cars and drive them around all the time because that's that's the way I would feel, so. Well, I mean, funnily enough, the first wrap-up question is uh, you've rented a Ferrari to drive around Tuscany. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you could rent another luxury car and explore somewhere, where would that be? Okay, so it would be a Lamborghini because I've always wanted to drive a car where the doors go up, like, you know, instead of out. That, that just looks cool. I had Transformers as a kid. Like, that's just really cool looking. I don't know how practical it is, but it's really cool looking. And where would I like to drive it? I would like to drive it around Monte Carlo, kind of on the coast of Monte Carlo. I think because that's, you know, James Bond, you see those kind of cliffs and those curves and all that. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'd probably kill myself doing it because I'm not that good a driver, but yeah. it would still be a lot of fun to do. So if you, you know, you've you traveled so much and that is apparent in a, by this <laughs> point, um, if you didn't live in Mexico now, where would you call home? Theoretically speaking, well, I, I'm moving to Taiwan in a year, so we hopefully will do that. We plan on living in Taiwan for the next 10 years. Um, and then lastly, um, is there anywhere we can keep up to date with you or the services that you offer? Absolutely. So I date myself because on social media, I'm not on Instagram I don't or, or Pinterest. I don't look very good in a bikini. So apparently I wouldn't get very many followers. Yeah. So I, I'm not on those sites very much. Yeah. So <laughs> Facebook, you can follow me there. Um, Twitter, uh, just on Facebook, Ray Blakeney in both places. You can find it. Look for a picture of me sword fighting. It's what I do for fun. I'm a semi-professional sword fighter. So if you find anybody who's not sword fighting, that's not me. You, so you can find kind of contact me through those. You can also contact me in my two main businesses right now, livelingua.com, L-I-V-E-L-I-N-G-U-A.com. And my new business called podcasthawk.com. That launched about three months ago. We are a service that can help you get booked on as a guest on podcasts on autopilot. So we're in beta for the rest of this year. Uh, so if you're interested in listening to this, you can lock in prices that are about a third of what we're going to offer a year from, you know, charging a year from now. Um, and if you're trying to kind of get your brand, grow your podcast, grow your business by appearing on podcasts, we'll take care of you for at this, as of today, $49 a month. It'll be 79 by the end of the year. But right now it's $49 a month. We'll take care of it for you. So those are the two places. Go to the contact us pages in both of them. You'll have, you'll find my direct email. I don't hide it behind a wall and you can email me there. 
perfect and those those links will all be in the show notes as well so everyone can go and go and click it and go check it out and uh and learn another language as well <laughs> absolutely learn another language and grow your business both things i'll help you with both so. <laughs> boom <laughs> but ray thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been a real pleasure thank you chris thanks for having me it's been a blast What a good chat with Ray that was. I really, really enjoyed that session with him. Just, it's always fantastic when you sit down and you just you just click and you get on with, with someone. So, fantastic on that front, but also fantastic that he has such an insightful view on entrepreneurship, language learning, culture, travel, how to use it to your advantage, the lessons in the, that he's learned as well from his nomadic lifestyle. I really, really, really enjoyed that episode and I hope you did too. I'd love to hear from you on btmtravelpods at gmail.com or on social media. You can get me on Instagram messaging. Focusing on the more travel side of this podcast, what is one place where you have felt home, away from home? I mean, for me, it'll be Norway. Every single time I've been, I say every single time, the two times I've been, it just clicks. I just feel relaxed there. I feel like it's my place. And I've got two other trips planned to go there as well, which are just on hold at the moment because of the wonderful year that we've had. But be keen to hear from you all. Consider buying some official merchandise, buying me a coffee, and I look forward to speaking with you in the next episode. Thanks. Thanks.